Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Tuesday Smiley for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is October 11th, 2019, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello, Tuesday. Hi, Michelle. Could you start off and introduce yourself? Uh, my name, as you said, is Tuesday Smiley. Um, I am a visual artist uh, who lives in Brooklyn, New York. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, it's, yeah, like, how, how, how broad an introduction to do? I feel like that's a good starting place. Um... Yeah. Where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Um, uh, I was born in Alston, which is a neighborhood in Boston, um, but uh, in a macrobiotic collective house that uh, my parents facilitated, my parents ran. Um, uh, but when I was really young, when my brother, my older brother started kindergarten, we moved to Brookline. Um, which is a neighboring city. It's actually surrounded on three sides by Boston, but has maintained its own township to as to not have to share its wealth in taxes, um, which in part meant that they had, uh, you know, the, the school system was considered really good. And so that was my, my parents moved from Boston to Brooklyn. Um, so that was, yeah, so that was like when I was two. So early, yeah. What was your family like? Um, that's funny. I hadn't really thought that I was going to talk about my family. Um, uh, well, I have one older brother who I grew up with. Um, and my mom and my dad uh, have been around for the duration of my life um uh my parents split up when i was in fourth grade um i remember it like seeming like the end of the world when when they told us you know i didn't really know i knew other kids who's like maybe only had one parent or whose parents weren't married but i didn't know kids who had whose parents had divorced um, but I feel like pretty quickly became clear that they were both happier not together. Um, and that they also like managed to have a pretty cordial divorce and stayed in regular contact while me and my brother were in school. And, you know, we would kind of move between houses sort of like three days here, four days there, three days here, four days there kind of thing. Um, yeah. So yeah. So I mean, I feel like you know, very quickly, it was. It seemed like uh, an actually much better kind of situation for everybody. Um, uh, and then I have two stepsisters um, who came later. Um, my my sister Whitney was in my brother's grade in high school, um, and she and my brother Eric 
basically got my dad and her mom together. Um, uh, I don't really know. I feel like they talked about it before. I don't really know how planned it was. Um, <laughs> but my brother borrowed Jean's car. No, my brother, my brother borrowed my dad's car. Um, and got into an accident coming home from a rave on New Year's Day with Whitney in the car, as, as well as a handful of other friends. Um, and so that was really kind of the bonding point for my dad and my stepmom, you know, where they were like, oh my god, our kids were just in an accident on the highway. We probably need to process this together. Um, yeah. Fortunately, no one was hurt in the accident. It was really... Uh, yeah, I don't think there were any other cars on the road. It was really early New Year's morning, or yeah, New Year's Day morning. Um, but yeah, makes for a good makes for a good you know uh, wedding story. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, and then I have written that my eldest stepsister um, Vanessa, uh, and so I we know two grades under my brother and Whitney. Um, they moved to Brookline um, from Mount Vernon. Uh, I mean, I think I think around the time that Whitney started high school, and so Vanessa also went to high school for a couple of years, but was older than us, and so I, didn't, I never went to school with her. Um, uh, but she is awesome, and I love her a lot. Um, yeah. What kind of work to do? Parents do. Uh, my mom. Um, my mom is a was a computer coder. She was actually debugging computer code. Um, uh, she worked at um, John Hancock, and then she worked at Compuware. Um, yeah, and she was really she she really enjoyed her job. Right, she was like, I get to do puzzles all day. Um, and so I think that I think that had some impact on kind of my conception of how work could be that worked in that like work shouldn't be drudgery that, that you should derive some enjoyment um, from 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 your paid labor. Um, yeah, I. It's really funny. I did not think that that, that I was going to be talking about my family. Um, but right, this is like as you said in the intro, uh, sort of, what was the term you used? Often they follow life course structures. <laughs> life, life course structure, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. We can skip past your family anytime we need to. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly interesting material there that I like to discuss with my therapist. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure how much of that I'm ready to have as like public record. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. What were you like? <laughs> um, I was, uh, I was a super shy kid. Um, yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah. 
feel like the world seemed pretty scary most of the time. Um, uh, I don't know, what kind of kid was I? Um, I mean, I totally idolized my brother. Um, he was not necessarily so excited to have a younger sibling. Um, but, like, whatever he did was definitely the coolest thing that you could do. <laughs> um, and I feel like we had a kind of, like... Uh, so my, my mom was working computer coding. Um, or should I stop clicking my pen? <laughs> um, and my dad wasn't working. And so, right, he, like... He was a stay-at-home dad, and, and we got to spend a lot of time with him. And so, you know, there was um, uh, there was a chunk of, like, just kind of getting to have outdoor adventures, going to, like, the, the Arboretum in Boston, and, like, romping around in the woods, and um, kind of, like, yeah, I don't know, just, like, I feel like he, he really enjoys... Um, like kind of like kid spirit and so I think it was really fun for him to have to have young people as as kind of uh, like playmates and peers um, uh, yeah I mean I remember being really excited about tree climbing probably because my brother was really into tree climbing um, uh Yeah, I don't know. How far forward <laughs> would you like to jump? <laughs> Should we talk about high school or, or after high school? Um, we could talk. We could talk a little bit about high school. Um, right, so I went to Brookline High, uh, and um, one the Brookline High had a couple kind of alternative programs built into the school um and so uh there there was like a you know in inspired by like working in the sort of vein of um uh these like democratic school models in, in which students have a say in their education model um but that was channeled through um, the constraints of being a public school and so there were you know there were right like we would have a town meeting once a week um, but there were obviously things that we could not change because they were state mandated um, uh, yeah and it was actually at that time right this is like late 90s and so Massachusetts was introducing um, the MCAS which was like uh, state um, statewide uh, testing school testing um uh that i'm pretty sure like that the school school funding would hinge on on how students performed in the testing and so right there is like a real kind of feedback loop of schools that were struggling or schools that like needed more support from the state would inevitably end up losing funding because they weren't performing well on the tests um and yeah there was a fair amount of, of uh like student 
and teacher agitation against kind of the, the sort of standardization of education. Um, I remember that being like um, a topic of conversation, certainly at, in, in school, within a school. Um, and that, you know, like me and a number of my peers participated in some protests that the ACLU had organized. Um, I did a lot of animal rights activism in in my high school years. Um, I feel like that was really kind of a gateway drug into uh, more complex political analysis, considering race and class and a myriad of other social factors. Um, but yeah, we would do these, you know, like I would participate in these weekly uh, anti-fur protests at Macy's. Um, but what are other, there were some other campaigns. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird being on public record. <laughs> yeah, like I'm like, oh, should I talk about graffiti? Should I not talk about graffiti? I mean, graffiti was certainly a sort of like also a, a kind of door opener for me in terms of uh, accessing a, a creative voice and, and like making space for a kind of... Um, emotional processing that that sidestepped verbal articulation or written language um uh that i that i mean i, de yeah, I definitely directly contribute to to my development you know that that's really my kind of like the, the the root of my creative artistic practice was like growing out of this need for uh for a way to communicate um for things that I didn't know how to, to verbally articulate, didn't have names or words for, um, but but really like uh, kind of enabling a, a sort of like emotional um, I don't know emotional expression, almost like a, a way a way to sort of check in with myself about where I was at emotionally. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do I just talk? That's what happens in the interview? That's what happens. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, I mean, that's very interesting what you said. You yeah. Know, I mean, I think it's about a way into your art and a way into your creative practice that mm -hmm. is through this activity that was quite, you know, grappling with some emotional and psychological issues that yeah. you couldn't grapple with otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, it was super... It was super helpful. I feel like, <clears throat> yeah, I'm not really sure kind of how, what, how things would have happened otherwise if, if, there, if there hadn't been that kind of uh, space. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, then I graduated high school and, um, like didn't want didn't really know what i was doing i didn't want to go right to college you know most of the folks from brooklyn high most of the folks in sws were were, were like 
going right into school or we're doing a year deferred and then going to school. But there's, I mean, you know, and at Brooklyn, I have the majority of folks were, were, were going to go to college. SWS um, was the oh, SWS, Yeah, SWS was schooled in the school. That was the alternative program, the, demo, the quote, democratic right. alternative program within the school. Um, yeah, the school, Brooklyn High also had it. There was an alternative program, um, OFC, which is uh, Opportunities for Change. Um, and that was, that was like more of a kind of safety net for folks who um, were having a hard time making school work for them. I mean, I feel like it is really interesting kind of thinking about sort of model that's, that uh, Brooklyn High made as, as a very well-funded public school um, of really like making efforts to accommodate students in, like, in, in a variety of coming from a variety of places, interacting with education in a variety of ways. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I graduated. Um, there was, I mean, there like, I feel like there was pressure more so from my mom about kind of, uh, sort of life expectations, but not necessarily career expectations. Um, and yeah. And so I was, but I was like, I'm just going to go like wander around for a while. And neither of my parents were excited about that, but they're both kind of like, okay, I guess that's what you're going to do. Like, so, um, yeah, so I like started biking across the country and then took a bus a chunk of the way and then did like hitchhiked around the country a bunch and um, ended up out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I had I knew some folks from Boston um, who were living out there, and you know someone was like, "Oh yeah, you should come," like. There's t- like there's tons of kids out here doing art. You should come hang out in Portland. And I was like, okay. Like I didn't really wasn't doing anything, so I was like, sure, that sounds fun. Um, and I like moved into this punk house in Northeast Portland, the Tilla Monster on Tillamook Street. Um, and then we all got evicted like three months later, and everyone was like, oh, it's it's winter now. Like it's gonna rain. It's gonna be raining for the next couple months. Like we're just gonna go traveling. And I was like, oh, I'm tired of traveling and so i like you know looked 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 for other housing in portland um and there was like this was back you know this is 2001 there was like flyers on bulletin boards in cafes um and i called i called this uh house that was looking for a roommate and they were like oh we found someone but our friends are looking so maybe you should call the cooch house and so I called this other, and they were both queer houses. I was not out as queer um, or trans, uh, but it like seemed like the place I wanted to live. Um, so we met that year then in two thousand one. Yeah, yeah, at the Cooch House. Yeah, 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 and that was yeah that that was when I came out. Um, which I feel like was, I mean, really nurtured by the queer community that I kind of 
like planted myself in without really knowing why I was doing that. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, it, you know, this is like, there weren't a lot of other trans women in that scene, right? Like there were, there were a number of trans masculine folks and then most of the folks I was hanging out with were um, like female identified, female assigned. Um, but there was, there, there was a kind of like openness and understanding to transness that, um, that really like made a space for, for that to be something that could be possible for me. Um, which is something I'm super grateful for. Were you connecting to an art practice in, in any, uh. while you were in Portland <laughs> or was there a community space for that like what was the cultural scene you were around yeah um uh i mean i was still very interested in graffiti um and and then like i started making i mean it my my relationship to graffiti has never been a kind of uh traditional like um you know all city tagging, uh, like kind of motivation, but but more sort of interest in in like situating myself within a physical space, right? Like kind of like um, uh, like wanting. I mean, I think on some levels, like wanting to assert that I existed in some way um, by 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 making public art um but then also was was you know working on paintings at home um you know like i mean often with spray paint but also kind of uh, like uh, you know collage and xerox and like a, a bunch of other kind of materials that you know um i mean it's a sort of weird mix of like graffiti street art uh, zine culture, um, yeah, uh, um, and so right. And so I started. I started making these uh, like zine artist books that that were. Um, I mean, people, lots, lots of folks in Portland were making zines at the time. Zines. If you don't know what a zine is, a zine is was kind of like blogs before blogs were popular. Um, they were like, you know, these. Uh, self-produced pieces of writing and visual art um, often reproduced in black and white Xerox Um, so so kind of you know um, right like sort of uh, claiming a platform when when a platform is um, at that point right that like was was really controlled by uh, you know kind of publishing gatekeepers um yeah and so right so i was interested in this kind of like the alternative platform of zines um but but also had like was much more interested in the sort of visual aesthetic than the written word um and so yeah and so i started like making making these zines that were you know kind of collaged assemblages photographs i'd taken found images um sometimes really you know uh sparse 
text um, and then colored, color copied. And so the zine runs would be much smaller than kind of an average run because making color copies was difficult. Um, yeah. Could you say more about the cultural milieu of the scene, the community in Portland? Yeah. That you were part of? Yeah. Um, yeah, the early 2000s in Portland, uh, like, I feel like there was this kind of, or at least this, right, the scene that we interacted with, um, there was this sort of interweaving of, like, uh, queer radicalism and green anarchism. Um, right, there was a lot of kind of eco-defense organizing happening um there was like uh folks doing tree sits protecting um trees from logging um and that there you know that obviously was happening outside of the city but there was a fair amount of of kind of like um support work happening within the city that to to enable um the these kinds of ongoing nature occupations um uh yeah, and I mean, I feel like that's right. So thinking about kind of maybe, um, you know, animal rights activism as a kind of entry point into, into like, politics. I feel like I really got kind of schooled in, in uh, like, intersectional queer radicalism in, in Portland um, in a way that I am super grateful for. Um, and that happened, you know, happened largely through kind of, uh, like, in-person community conversations and also through zines. I mean, zines played a really important role. Um, but I do think, I mean, I don't, I'm like, I'm not, I, I don't have a, I'm not super present on the internet these days, but my impression is that, um, like politics are formed differently through, through the removed space of the internet than through, um, the kind of direct conversation of, of, peers engaging with each other and, and right the kind of um, room that there is uh, to be like you know to have something you say or, or something you're doing be like questioned without that being a capital C call out you know um, there being there being a, a much more kind of like a community holding space for for sort of developing a politic um, collectively as, as opposed to uh, I mean, right, like, as I said, largely an outsider, but as, as it can appear on the internet for it sort of to be like this, you know, like, I mean, and, and weird because it's like to feel, to have it feel like it's a top, kind of top down uh, expression of politic, but then there isn't, there isn't really a top in the, in, I mean, there are internet tops, but there isn't, you know, there isn't like a centralized source of the, I mean, that's the, right, the internet kind of like, that's one of the nearly amazing, bizarre, powerful things about the internet is its ability to diffuse a centralized source. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, but I do feel like there was, right, there was kind of like, I mean, to your sort of question about the Malou and, and like, a, just sort of like the aesthetic of that there was this sort of interplay of a really, like, serious sincere organizing and then also um like really playful engagements uh like i remember there being a like valentine's day bike ride and people were like dressed up in 
Valentine costumes. Like someone was wearing a, what are the little candies that are shaped like hearts that are like someone was like dressed up in this heart thing with a message written on it and like yeah it was a it was a weird moment and and i think really special um but so yeah so i like you know was kind of doing art stuff and and getting politically schooled and like was i mean pretty peripheral to any kind of direct organizing that was happening um and was like working part-time uh at a tofu factory um and there was i mean right like poland had a really high unemployment rate i don't remember if it was like 12 percent unemployment or something in in the early aughts um but it was really, I mean, it was really, like, you know, most, most of the folks I knew worked part-time, and, but that also, you know, like, the, the cost of living was relatively low, and so, you know, like, yeah, folks, folks were just kind of making it work, but also it meant that there was something of a kind of flexibility to um, how people, how people use their time, and it felt, you know, feels very different than living in New York today. <laughs> um Yeah, and then and then after a few years, uh, I decided to go to Oregon College of Art and Craft, um, and that I mean that in part was you know was something that my my mom encouraged me to do, um, and I remember being like really feeling like a kind of big decision of whether like whether I could justify spending like spending that amount of time or, or giving giving art that like like letting art t- take that priority you know as as opposed to doing direct organizing um and right that like feeling really kind of conflicted of like this you know like a- allowing myself to pursue uh these artistic endeavors feeling like um like self-indulgent you know um it's not true. It's not self-indulgent. There's important work that happens through the production of culture. Go be artists. You, 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 you brave, smart people. <laughs> so you came. You said you came out as trans uh, mm. while living at the Hooch House and living in Portland. Yeah, that happened. <laughs> Do you want to say anything else about that? Um. God, yeah, it's funny when I like when See, I was, I keep, keep leaving away, away from the mic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also, I'm unusually far away from the mic, uh-huh. so I keep moving closer. Uh-huh. This makes uh-huh. you move farther. Oh, I see. Back. I here, see. Let's, let's move to this corner here. <laughs> let's I'll both slide up, and maybe the corner will be some defense. For you. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> um. Yeah, I really didn't think about bio when I was, like, making notes to myself about what I wanted to talk about. I really was, like, you know, thinking about the art I'm making now. And, um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, I feel like, right, that I, like, I didn't feel like I fit the kind of uh, 
standard narratives about who a trans woman was. Um, and granted, those standard, you know, my access to those standard narratives in the early thousands were um, limited. Uh, there, there weren't a ton of uh, good public resources. Um, I feel like my most... I never saw a crying game, but I feel like my most memorable encounter of media representation of trans people as a young person was um, Silence of the Lambs. Um, so yeah, it didn't, it didn't, it didn't seem awesome. It didn't seem like a cool thing to do. Um, but there, right, but there was this way that like queer space in Portland uh, had like that gender queer was was more of the terminology than than uh certainly than transsexual um and but i don't really i don't really remember at that point i mean i feel like maybe sometimes people would use the term transgender but i feel like really the, the like the majority of the language i remember was like was about was gender queer what do you remember i remember there being trans men yeah and gender queer female signed people uh-huh. and, and a fair number of both yeah yeah, yeah. Not as many as cis women, but yeah. a fair number of both. Yeah. So in some ways, it felt like a dynamic, expanding moment of trans identity. Yeah. But not for trans women. Yeah. Totally. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, all, like, yeah, there were just a number of ways where, where I was like, is this, you know, is this thing I'm allowed to do? Um, I remember having a conversation with our friend Adele Carpenter um, about like, right. So I, I mean, I also am primarily attracted to femme people. Um, and so that, I feel like that also was like a point of confusion for me where I was like, Oh, what does it mean to like, to want to be femme and to be attracted to femmes? Um, I remember having this conversation with Adele where I was like, expressing concern basically about like appropriating gay male culture by presenting as femme and Adele was just like you get to do whatever the fuck you want to do it really was like I was like oh okay like I mean I think you know partially right that like Adele is a very charismatic person and also like I certainly I mean at the time and ongoing like have a deep respect for her politic and so i was like oh great if adele says this is okay then like it's definitely okay um yeah yeah and so right so there's this way that like you know that the community really like made space for exploration that that like the transphobia of broader society had worked really hard to to shut down yeah Yeah, it was rough for my parents. <laughs> um, uh, it's gotten easier for both of them. Um, they, they've done a chunk of work themselves. Um, but I, yeah, I like, you know, I totally was like, oh my God, me and my mom are going to have this like, like bonding moment when I tell her. And that's, <laughs> that's not what happened. <laughs> But yeah, and I remember my brother, I feel like my brother was really, I mean, my brother and my, both my stepsisters are queer. And so that was like, really great to have um, their support. Uh, 
and my brother I remember my brother early on being like yeah at first you know like this really kind of freaked me out like I was really nervous about it and then I was like well who knows better than Tuesday what's best for Tuesday and he was like so I don't understand but I don't think I have to so like I'm just gonna follow your lead and that like that was really huge yeah 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 and I think also my like having particularly for my dad like having my my stepmom was like oh great okay like she you know she had like no investment in in my like gender being masculine I think like probably in part because you know she like she came to the family later but also because she has like has had had much more kind of experience in queer worlds like her her first husband was queer um and so like it felt much much less terrifying for her she was just like oh cool we have you know we have a tuesday now fantastic um and so i'm super grateful for her also for the kind of work that she did uh helping helping my dad kind of adjust So you went to art school, you kept making art, you decided to prioritize art and and not see it as as not legitimate. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I feel like there's a way that, like, as much as I chose art, that art chose me, right? That there's this way, you know, thinking back to being a teenager that, um, that like, this was, this, like, this was my path of, of sincere communication. And I feel like that that is kind of the best like some of the most effective organizing we can do is is to be like radically sincere with each other um and yeah and so that's like that's right that's that's kind of what i strive to to continue doing with my practice today um Yeah, should I talk about my practice now? What do I do? Uh, when did you move to New York? Oh, I moved to New York in the end of 2007 after I graduated from OCAC in the spring of 2007 um, and felt really ready to leave Portland at that point. I'd been there for seven years. Um, I really missed the seasons happen on the East Coast. Um, and I wanted to be in, you know, in in the art center of New York. Um, yeah, I moved here in 2007. I, like, um, found the, uh, the artist Wageshi Mutu's address on the internet somehow, and I was like, I knew that she lived in Brooklyn, and I was like, oh, this can't really be her address. Like, why would she just have her address somewhere listed online? Um, but she, I was living in Bushwick and she was living in Bed-Stuy. And so I like went and biked, pa- like biked past her house to be like, is this really her house? And there was, uh, right. She was working on, you know, doing these paintings and collages on Mylar. And there was one up in the, in the window on the, like on the second floor. And because it was Mylar, you could see, you know, you could like, I couldn't see all of the detail of it but you could kind of see through that there was a, a, a human figure on this piece and I was just like oh this is clearly actually is her could you her say house. her name again yeah Wageshi Mutu um and so I like you know made this uh kind of like 
fan mail love letter application and was just like, I want to, I want my, like, I want to help you make your dreams come true. Can I work for you? Um, and then I started working for her and we worked together for many, on and off for many years. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, right. I mean, like moving to New York was hard, but having that, like, you know, having that, uh, like, job as a as a kind of part of my landing here i think was super helpful in terms of being like okay this is like this is this is a good decision for me this is a good place for me to be um what was your impression of new york moving in to it you were drawn here as an artistic center you said yeah um yeah it was hard to make friends i mean i knew a handful of people before i moved here and that definitely helped. Um, but there's so much more time scarcity in New York than in Portland. Um, uh, yeah, like I would talk to people at, at parties and I feel like, you know, even if like you, even if we'd been introduced by, by mutual peers, that people were kind of like, what do you want? You know, like, I was like, I'm, I, I'm just trying to talk to you. Like, I don't actually want anything. Um, but I feel like people are protective of their of their time because because we all have to work so much, um, you know, which makes sense and and can be hard for new folks to the city. Um, and it's, yeah, it's definitely like a different kind of sociality than than happened in Portland. Um, but yeah, it was exciting to be here. It felt, you know. Like, there, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of art stuff happening. Um, and it was just exciting to be, like, in a giant city again. Uh, yeah, but I moved three times that first year and got bed bugs, so it was also rough. <laughs> I definitely got hazed by New York. <laughs> yeah. Did you encounter trans community in the city at all? Yeah, I mean, Michelle O'Brien, who is interviewing me, um, had weekly dinners at her house um, that were really sweet and really great, like, I feel like also a really great landing pad for me in New York. Um, uh, but I feel like it kind of took me, I mean, I knew, I feel like, yeah, I feel like, what's the right way to word this? I mean, I think, I think that, like, huh. It's funny that I can't edit it later. <laughs> um, I mean, it was certainly really exciting to for there to be, like, trans organizing happening on a significant level in a way that, that I hadn't really seen before um, with, you know, the Silver Vera Law Project. Um uh, and also, I mean, for me personally, like really, like amazing and fortuitous for that to, you know, for their, for like, for SRLP's largest fundraising event to be an art auction, um, and to, you know, to have this kind of like merging of, uh, of a trans politic and, and creative expression, um, felt like really beautiful. Um, uh, but I, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've largely been 
fairly peripheral to kind of to trans communities. Um, I have, I mean, I have a variety of thoughts about that that I would be happy to discuss with you, but I don't know if I want to discuss for, uh, you know, the ongoing record in your public library. Hello, microphone. <laughs> how did your, how was your art practice evolving, um, both in art school and then when you moved to New York and in your early years in New York? Um, I mean, I think, well, think, like, definitely moving to New York, uh, the work got smaller, um, because I was working out of my apartment, um, and so kind of the scale, right, you know, the space was, was really cheap in Portland, and so I had, like, I had a, a dedicated studio, um, in the basement of the, of the house that I lived in, um, uh, but I think, I mean, I think more interestingly, um, right, that there, that, like, the, the thesis work that I did at OCAC, um, like, was very much about kind of, uh, like, it was a sort of personal, autobiographical, um, like, exploration of my experience with the navigation of, of gender identity, um, and, uh, and that I feel like was really, again, really helpful. I mean, yeah, in, in, in like my kind of personal growth and personal development. Um, but that I think ultimately like is not, um, just doesn't feel like the most interesting subject matter for me at this point in my life and in my career. Um, and so, right, there's a way that, like, uh, a lot of the work that I make now while engages with a trans-feminist politic and, and engages with, certainly with, like, a lineage of, or a legacy of um, trans-activism um, that, like, I really am not interested in kind of uh, delving into or, or pointing to... Um, the specifics of trans experience um and that that is in part because there i feel like there you know is a sort of uh like obsessive consumptive um fascination with trans people um both in the mainstream media and in the medical industry um that i'm not interested in like participating in um uh and and also because I feel like right that they're they're that I'm not really interested in in delineating um, you know making parameters for making boundaries for marking inclusions and exclusion of what trans experience is supposed to be or looks like or should be um, you know and I'm like I'm much more interested in a in a, like open ended politic that is focused on making sure that everyone's needs are met um regardless of social location um and and so the kind of like nuance of uh trans experience just doesn't for me just doesn't feel like the most interesting or compelling way to engage people um 
around questions of how we like are all navigating and negotiating power in our daily lives. Um, yeah. Can you tell us how you came to that? What the sort of process of evolution was? It sounds like it was concurrent with your move to New York in some ways. And Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think... I think that part of partially like for my given my own social location, right, that as a white upper middle class trans woman, like I have a significant amount of privilege. Um, And so, uh, you know, there's a way that like to be spotlighting my experience feels indulgent, you know, Um, and feels like uh, not really productive in terms of actually um, engaging the systems of power that that are uh endangering trans people right that i feel i feel largely buffered from the most extreme forms of of violence and transphobia enacted by the state and and socially um through through my whiteness and through my class privilege um and so right so it was like partially like i don't yeah i don't i don't want to be like I don't know what the word is, but, you know, this sort of, like, well, like, navigating the medical industry sucks, and, like, and I feel like there's much more pressing concerns and violences on, you know, being being thrust on people that, that merit much more attention. Um... Yeah. But yeah, I'm not really, I mean, yeah, I think, I feel like, that right, it's, you know, that, but just like as my politics has continued to evolve through, through interaction with my peers, um, that, yeah, I don't know, I can't think of a kind of like specific turning point for, um, for that. Um, but yeah, but I do feel like at this point, right, that, I mean, I do, right, there, a, lot, a lot of my works do engage um, uh, the, like, street transvestites, action revolutionaries as, as forebearers for the current trans justice organizing that's happening. Um, and I mean, that, like, that feels super important to me in terms of, uh, like, finding some kind of grounding, finding some kind of history um out of the sort of like erasure of of trans history um and like the whitewashing of of you know uh gay and queer movements um but yeah but i think like i think i think i think i guess with with like Like, I guess at this point, I kind of see the, the artwork functioning and it, like, serving a couple functions, right? And one is that it continues to be a space for me to, like, um, explore and work, like, work through things and to sort of have an emotional, uh, like, um, like, to, to let to let my emotional world inform my, my cognitive thinking. Um, but then also, 
like I want, you know, I want to be um, uh, holding and honoring the like trans forebears who who came before us, um, and particularly like you know folks who. Well, it's so this thing is so weird. Um, yeah, I mean, folks who until recently have really been written out of of uh, of our of our histories of of political histories. Um, uh, but but and so the right so there is a way that I want like that I that I am when I'm making the works that I am thinking about the work speaking to. Um, to queer and trans viewers specifically and and like politicized queer and trans viewers but i also feel really aware that that is not the majority of the people who um are in art spaces who are interacting with with artwork um and so i also am really interested in kind of uh like navigating an open-endedness um that leaves the work accessible and invites and like that there's even an invitation um to folks from a variety of social locations and a variety of politics um and right that there's a kind of a like um an invitation uh hopefully like a level of enticement to the viewer to 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 engage with the work right and that's that's something that i do through kind of like a careful crafting of of the work careful composition consideration of composition you know color um and, and how the work is physically put together, um, right? That I like, I want, I want, I want, I want people to look at the work, and I want to reward that looking. Um, but then also that I that I like particularly the works that have text, um, that I want like that I want the works to challenge the viewer to consider each of our relationships to power, um, and whether that be you know in a hierarchical structure, whether that be power that's moving horizontally. Um, uh, right, that 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 I that like I'm interested in a kind of open-ended invitation that makes space for um, for folks from like from all kinds of social locations to to be able to be critically self-reflexive, um, and I'm and I'm interested in that like the sort of specificity of of this like of, of like a, a loving critical self-reflection um as a like a, a, as a potentially really powerful political tool um right that there are you know these really real and dangerous uh institutions and architectures um that are enacting systemic violence like the prison industrial complex um and 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 that they are enabled by individuals, right? And you know that like each, each of our um, each of our positioning that that like allows these institutions to continue um, plays as much role as as the institutions themselves. And so, right, like I'm not I'm not advocating for a kind of uh, um, like. self-reflection instead of direct organizing um that they're but they're both but they're both important um and again right that this is kind of the calling that you know that uh that i feel like art has invited me to um is to is to be working through these channels
there's something about um there's something about like thinking about uh critical self-reflection um as like as as a kind of love um and that like and i think i mean i like kind of touched on this earlier but right i think that there is like i feel like this is already starting to shift but in in kind of online culture that it feels like that the this sort of like call out culture um like to me feels really dangerous because i feel like uh that that we're alienating potential allies um, instead instead of kind of like working to collectively build uh, a politic, um, but I think that right I think the idea of of sort of like uh, of of critique, um, whether that's in you know whether that's auto critique whether that's like internal personal critique or, or external critique can feel really terrifying, um, and I think I think that like I think that uh, there's something about like. There's something about dyslexia, right? I'm dyslexic. I like. It was really I had a really hard time learning how to read, um, and like, and I was at, at in Brookline schools was able to get uh, like specialized attention for dyslexia. There was a, something called the Learning Center when I was you know in second grade that I went to. Um, and so there's this way that I actually feel like, and I feel like this is something that comes up with, with friends of mine when I'm like working on something and I ask for feedback and really I'm asking for, like I, I'm, I'm asking for rigorous critique. And I think people, it, like people can kind of shy away from that because it, like it, it can feel scary. But there, like there's a way in my head that it actually feels like uh, a kind of love, right? And that it's like, you know, that like, I don't know, there's something about like, There's something about like being like being in the learning center and like right like feeling like I was like working twice as hard as the other students and was doing worse than everyone else you know and then like having this specialized attention that like was not like oh you're doing great congratulations but was like was like really uh, like sincerely digging into kind of where the problem points were like where I was getting stuck and why like what what was giving me what was what was what was preventing me from being able to like understand what these letters were supposed to be doing together um and so yeah so i feel like like i feel like i have a kind of emotional uh affinity for for a sort of like rigorous critical reading that 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 yeah that it feels it like it feels like right that it's actually about like all of us being able to do better um Yeah. Okay, we're back from a short break, um, and I have a lot more questions, but before we get into that, you um, mentioned that this was hard. Do you want to say a little <laughs> bit about what's challenging about um, doing an interview about your life <laughs> on the permanent public record? Um, I mean, well, it's, it's like, it's weird because it's not really a conversation. Like, I'm just, 
as you invited, I'm just rambling. But then, yeah, there isn't, I mean, you know, as someone who's fond of critique, like, I don't get to go back and revise and, you know, like, tweak the sentence structure so the smart point is extra underlined and all the ohms are cut out. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so it feels a little... It's like it feels a little uncomfortable. Um, I don't know. Are you scared of anything in particular? With this interview or just in general? I'm scared of so much. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's something about like just having a record that is intense. Um... I mean, I think, I think, like, most of, I mean, like, right, like, you know, I want, like, I I want, like, I want my politics to sound good, obviously, but I think most of the kind of the actual concern about, like, uh, what to say and what not to say is more kind of, like, questions about disclosure about other folks, um, And like, see, even just that statement, like, I don't, it's not that I want my politic to sound good. It's that I want my politics to be well articulated. Like, and even just think about like when a, when a spoken interview is transcribed, how, you know, the different shape, the different word, like words mean different things when you read them than when you hear someone speak them, right? That there's like intonation and pause and whatever that changes kind of the meaning, but like, if you just read read the phrase, I want my politic to sound good. Like I sound like a politician, you know. <laughs> but like, what I actually want is to be sincerely conveying like my heartfelt opinions in an accurate and articulate way. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure there. You know, like we don't want to fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, tell me about uh, your sort of evolving art community when you moved to New York. Like, what was the trajectory of your engagement with other artists, other artists' engagement with you, the sort of movement of people starting to look at your work in different sorts of spaces? Can you tell us about your your relationship to art community? Yeah, Um I mean, I think, like, like I feel like all, I mean, as I've kind of said a couple times about sort of like my evolving politic growing from community dialogue, um, right, and I think about my artwork as an extension of my politic, and so that, you know, there's like, they're, I feel like they're very interwoven, um, uh, and there are particular projects, um, like, uh, Reflecting Light into the Unshadow, which is a broad body of work that engages or writings by Ursula K. Le Guin um, that happened over a long period of time. And like part of why I feel like that body of work is so strong is because there was space to have these conversations with my community, you know, right? That like I'm like thinking about these texts, I'm making a making a 
artwork that reflects this one way of thinking about it. And then I'm talking about it with my friends because I'm excited about it. And they're asking me questions and, and bring up things that I haven't thought of yet. And so that like the, the work gets to grow because I'm having this engagement and not even necessarily exclusively with other artists, but just with, you know, with, with critically engaged, um, smart peers. Um, and so I'm super grateful for that. And I feel like, right. You know, the, the, there's this kind of, uh, perpetual myth of like, the lone genius and it's like no one is doing anything on their own like ever <laughs> anything productive you know it's like all of this is growing out of out of like so much collective labor and thinking and heart um uh but in terms of engaging with um other artists i mean i feel like right that you know my like everything just happens through like through through people you know and and people who have seen your work and respect your work and and understand what you're doing um and so for me right like a big turning point was showing work um, at the new museum in trigger um and that you know i had never shown work at a museum before um i like had had a solo show at uh, like queer community center in Philadelphia was my you know what the kind of previous like big show I had um, and it was a project that uh, like Tourmaline was was one of the people that the curators were talking to early on and and she was like oh yeah you need to look at Tuesday's work and um, and yeah and it's, and it's like just through kind of peer recommendation that like that that um, that that show happened and then and then having you know having work in in um at the new museum kind of opened the door for all these other opportunities um so i mean yeah you know that in, in that way it feels very much that like any kind of artistic trajectory is is going to grow out of out of like a kind of peer support um thank you tourmaline So the community, the support has grown since you moved to New York. Yeah. Has it changed in other ways? Yeah. Um, I mean, in so many ways. <laughs> um, I mean, partially I think it right is, is just that, like, New York is like has made itself a, a art epicenter um and so being in sp art spaces here you know the like um peers or connections you're you're gonna make have like have the potential to um uh to to have an impact that wouldn't happen in portland or in a in a smaller city um uh but I mean, I feel like, I don't know, like, I feel like, like, radical queers making art, you know, like, that was happening in Portland and, and, um, and that, like, right, that work was not necessarily recognized by art institutions, um, and was, like, super informative for me and my making process. 
Um, yeah, I mean, right, there's something about the kind of like, uh, the sort of power of, of the center reinforcing itself as the center, you know? Um, but then there also is like, uh, flexibility that can happen in, in the, in the, in, in non-centers because they're not the center. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned a job as an artist assistant when you moved to New York. Yeah. Um, how have you made a living? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I worked with Wageshi Mutu over, I mean, I guess the last gig we did together was that was winter 2016-2017. Um, so, we, you know, we've had a kind of, like, working relationship on and off for, for those 10 years. Um, and uh, I also worked um, at the Ali Fournay Center, um, uh, which is a queer and trans homeless youth center. Um, and so I worked in one of their housing facilities, um, for a number of years. Uh, and I also worked for a window display studio, um, as an office manager, uh, for Burke and Pride. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, different, I mean, yeah, there's like, there's sort of a, um, the creative industry in New York is wide and diverse and there's, there's lots of opportunities for folks to plug themselves in into, into different situations. Um, but those networks are often not like how that, how that happens is you you like is you know usually through someone knows someone it's it can be a really hard thing um for for folks who do not have some kind of in uh to to access um and then i just recently finished a museum studies grad program at city college um and that uh that program i went to that program thinking about arts administration collections management um, as, uh, as like a good work opportunity. Um, and that was really, like I started in 2016. Um, and then the trigger show happened, you know, I started in the, I started in the spring and the trigger show happened in the fall. Um, I thought I was going to take a break from art stuff and was going to like get career, get jobby job squared away but then but then the show started happening so i've been figuring out how to juggle both i just finished the grad program and now i'm sort of right like kind of think about what how to proceed what makes sense yeah yeah it's expensive to live here <laughs> how long were you at alley for I think I was there like three years, I think, two or three. Um, yeah, yeah, and that that work, I mean, that work was like, 
it was it was really taxing. You know, we worked twelve hour shifts, um, and and it was like there's a weird there's a weird thing about kind of that like uh, that kind of direct service providing where there's a lot of downtime, right? Um, and but then there's sort of always the potential for drama. Um, and so there's this weird kind of like, right, like not like not having a task that's, you know, a task that's right in front of you that, that can be completed, but sort of just like hanging out and being peripherally on watch all the time. It's, yeah, I found it um, taxing. Um, and then uh, Wageshi, you know, Wageshi was continuing to, to get more and more attention and she needed more support in her studio and so I, I moved from working part-time for her and for Ali Fournay to, to working full-time for her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ali Fournay is providing really crucial services for young folks in need. If you have some money, you might want to give it to them. Um, how has it been uh, starting? You mentioned the show at the New Museum really opening a lot of avenues and a lot more relationships and shows and a lot more attention on your work. I mean, in some ways, you've uh, become uh, pretty well known as trans artists go in a fairly short span of time, a few years. Um, what has that been like for you uh, emotionally and in terms of the rhythm and dynamics of your life? And... Yeah. Um, it's been interesting. Uh, I mean, it's really, it feels really exciting to have people interested and excited about the work, you know, and, and to be able to have a platform for sharing the work feels, feels really good. Um, uh, it's funny, I find myself kind of perpetually, right, like someone will contact me about a show and that like I feel like I'm always like I always start off really kind of wary about about their like their politic or what they you know what 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 their show is doing or isn't often more often isn't doing um and then I feel like it's usually not until like halfway through the show is actually you know the show, the exhibition's been up for half of its running time. And then I'm like, oh, this person's really on my team and like really gets me. But I do have this kind of guarded reserve where I'm you know that like, I mean, I think some of that is kind of coming out of like the 2014 quote unquote transgender tripping tipping point tripping point. <laughs> um, of right of like transness feeling like a hot topic but but not really trusting that the attention that is um that the media is giving to it is is actually in trans people's best interest um yeah and i think also that it's right that you know that that so much of how i think about my creative practice is nested in like in a trans feminist politic that that like when folks from outside a radical queer community approach me and are and are interested in the work i'm kind of skeptical of like i'm like what do you what like what do you what do you see what do you think the work is doing what why is this interested interesting to you you know um uh but i have it has been it has been really rewarding to to kind of find repeatedly that those concerns have um 
have been ill-founded. Um, yeah, and I mean, art, you know, art plays a really weird, important role socially. Um, and, you know, since, like, well, for a long time, but, you know, since since the... 60s at least and and certainly with the culture world wars um that you know that there there has been this kind of like ongoing potential for artwork to um uh to sort of guide a, a broader like politic and at times a, a broader social opinion um and so yeah being able to connect with people who 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 are interested in Art being powerful in that way in some way and are in curatorial positions um, is is really uh, exciting and I feel like it is you know is, is really kind of a, a special opportunity. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the economics of the art scene. So, like, are you yeah. do you sell work occasionally? Do the work's all for of, sale. I do a lot of other like what um, how how often. Are artists making a living off their work? How are these institutions funded and supported? Like, what enables yeah. the, this world yeah. to keep going? Yeah, it's a real intentionally mysterious, uh, you know, like, I feel like a lot of these questions are intentionally kind of shrouded in mystery. I mean, certainly uh, part of the art world's function is to act as a tax shelter for the extremely wealthy. Um, uh, that's not the only thing that art can do, but it is one thing that it is concretely doing. Um, uh, and right, and, you know, there's been a lot of attention recently on, um, uh, Canders, who was on the board at the Whitney Museum, who, uh, like, runs, ran, run, um, uh, company making tear gas and other military equipment. Um, and yeah, this, right, this, these kind of questions about like what, you know, while the, you know, while boards theoretically don't have any say over the creative expression of an institution, inevitably they provide a significant amount of the funding for these institutions and, and their, like, their opinions are gonna matter. Um, and so it, it is this really weird, uh, kind of in between space where right where like where art really does um or has the potential to to be like a really vocal social political venue or avenue um and at the same time is you know is is uh not necessarily steered by but potentially controlled by um the uber wealthy um at least enabled by. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, selling work. Um, I mean, I don't. Yeah. I mean, I. I. Some people sell work and make lots of money. And I don't know. I don't know a lot of like a lot of my immediate peers, folks who I knew. um who, like who I was in community with before we started getting art attention, uh, are not at a place where we're supporting ourselves with our art, um, or or are, but in a very kind of uh, tenuous, precarious way. Um, 
Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been trying to kind of think about how, how to like getting married to a gallery, what that means and who, which, like which galleries would be a good fit, how to pursue that. It, like, again, it all feels very intentionally kind of cloaked in mystery, how any of this stuff happens. Um, uh, I have gotten, you know, I have sold some work, but I certainly am not able to support myself through my work yet. Um, yeah, and and I mean, uh, and it's 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 a weird, it's a weird kind of question because, or not a weird question that you ask, but a, a, a weird sort of position to be in. Um, because I don't really want to be relying on the on my artwork for my income, you know. I don't want to have that pressure on my creative practice. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to, you know, subconsciously be knowing that I have to be paying rent next month or next year, and that I need to make a series of works that are that are going to be saleable. I want to have like a flexibility to be making the work that feels most important to make at that moment. Um, and it also feels really appealing to be able to like be an artist full time and not, and not be juggling other work. So, um, I don't know. I think this next year, I mean, right. I like just finished my last credit for school this summer. I guess I technically graduated the beginning of this spring. I haven't gotten my diploma. I don't do people, do you get a diploma when you graduate grad school? I don't know. You do, yes. Okay. Yeah, I haven't gotten my diploma yet, but I'm, my department head said he would vouch for me when I was applying for jobs, so I think I'm good. Um, so yeah, I think this next year will reveal a lot in terms of kind of how it ends up making sense to kind of balance um, other incomes and and having, having the flexibility to be able to um, jump at artistic opportunities when they present themselves. The artists I know who make a living from it um, all receive grants from European and Canadian nations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're not they they they're able to survive by being outside the U.S. You know? Yeah, um, but I gather New York. If you're going to make a living in the U.S., New York is the one and only place that you can have that shot. Yeah, or LA. Yeah. 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 Um, it sounds like that your participation in the show at the New Museum was really a pivot for you. Could you tell us about the piece that you had in that show? Um, or the work you had yeah. in that show? Yeah. Um, I had five textile works uh, that I refer to as banners. Um, uh, and these are large-scale textile collages with, with ready-made, using ready-made fabrics. Um that are in dialogue with protest signage. Um, and then there were three small uh, broadside prints um, that also had text, very small scale, 12 point text. Um, and and then uh, some kind of like abstract uh, imagery. Um, I love the banners. Um, what do I want to say about them? What were they about? Um, well, there was, they covered a fair amount of ground, but right, I think, I mean, particularly, well, with all the, the works, the banners and the, and the broadsides being text-based works, like, I feel like these works are the works that are most explicitly kind of challenging viewers to, um, to be considering 
each of our relationships to power. Um, and so there's one, there's one banner uh, that had like relatively small text. It would, I mean, most of the banners. It's funny because this is audio. You're not looking at pictures. Most of the banners are not really marchable. Like they don't really they they right they they've been designed for the contemplative space of the gallery um, and not for like a very quick attention span of street protest. Um, so they're right. They I mean they're in dialogue with protestants, but they're doing something else. They function differently than protest signage does. Um, so often that means, right, that the text is, the legibility of the text is challenged. Sometimes that means that the text is really small. Um, in one of these banners uh, entitled Sometimes, there was dark gray text on a black background. Um, but so for the piece, again, uh, there's like two inch tall text um, that runs across the upper left corner of the banner um, that says the razor blades we've swallowed will cut us again as we cough them up to cut each other um, and then there's like a right a kind of beige gray horizontal swatch of fabric that's layered with uh, like a suit lining a kind of like um, like white and navy striped suit lining material that that is at like a an uneven angle that makes this like diagonal these diagonal lines across the work um and then there's a panel to the right of that uh that's white canvas that has silver metallic paint um and is layered with uh with this bright orange fabric and then there are these little stitches these little details of embroidery floss stitching that run in lines um parallel to the pinstriping of the suit lining um that Kind of, I mean, that evoke or point to. They're certainly not like explicit um, depictions of, but but kind of nod to uh, you know potential the the potential of, of what a cut from a razor blade would look like. Um, yeah, and that I mean that work is very much about right, like thinking about the internalization of of um, systems of power and right that, you know, that, that we have been steeped in since birth in our, in, in, in our culture. Um, and, and kind of thinking about the ways that like we can and do leverage those systems for our own short-term gain. Um, and, and the ways that that leveraging ultimately like harms us as well as harms the people that, that we are targeting. Um, and, and, and specifically with that work, I'm like, I'm thinking about, um, uh, right, like, uh, enacting power, tapping into systemic power imbalances that don't necessarily have to align with hierarchical, um, uh, differentiations of power, right? That this, that, you know, that these acts are something that can happen horizontally, um, just as easily as, as happening top down. Um, uh, the work that I was referencing that's straight, this is good. I should just talk about the work. I, I think it's great. <laughs> cool. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah, the work sometimes that I mentioned before, um, uh, is maybe the, oh no, I guess genders greater than generals is the most like banner banner one, but sometimes looks a lot like a banner. It's, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, a black horizontal, um, uh, canvas that's then layered with, with, um, different pieces of, of black fabric. And so there's this kind of um, subtle patchwork accumulation 
that happens on the surface of the canvas. Um, and then there's there's like a, a swatch of um, t-shirt material and black lace that hangs off um, kind of just right or just left of, of center on the bottom of the banner. Um, and so it, right, it has like it has this very familiar shape to Proto's banner, but then but then is is not a, you know is, is is signaling that it is also something other than a protest banner. Um, and this one has really large text, but right as I said, it's, it's charcoal gray on a black ground, and so it's the the, the legibility is um, is I mean it's not it, it's not hard to read, but it's not it is you know it's not red text on a black ground or or white text on a black ground. Um, that there is something still of an invitation to to kind of uh, like to slow the reader down, um, and so that and that text reads uh, we fuck up sometimes, um, and the text is like a little a little too large for the for the banner. It's like it gets a little um, uh, jammed at the end, and then sometimes is really small or not really small, but is much smaller than we fuck up um, in the lower right corner. Um, and that work is is what is part of uh, the larger body of work, reflecting light into the unshadow, um, which which engages writings by Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, uh, but as like as it stands on its own, right, is like thinking about um, uh, the potential that we all have to like make fucking mistakes, um, and and like challenging the reader challenging the viewer to um uh like to not to not let that potential stand in the way of making of taking chances and taking risks but also to not um to not kind of deny or or like write over or shadow the mistakes when they happen right that the like there's um there there's like a a challenge to claim our mistakes um that that happens with that work um I was gonna say something about sometimes. Um, oh well, so right. So in I mean, in thinking about like the banners functioning differently in the gallery than in the street, um, right? There's a way that you know. Street protests, often when I approach a protest, like I'm trying to establish my position to their politic before I'm interacting with anybody directly. Um, and that there's there is this kind of uh, like binary positioning that's built into, into street protest. Um, uh, and and right, and that like signage then therefore like tends to be really declarative and also tends to be really kind of um, simplified and, and right, and like reducing often really complex concepts to like to 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 sound bites um and so i'm interested i mean i'm interested in the kind of urgency and intensity of protest signage um uh, but i want to think about what can happen with that intensity in a contemplative space of a gallery right that the viewers come into a gallery usually with a willingness to spend some time with what they're looking at to to consider the content whereas on the street right i feel like you've got maybe two seconds of, you know, you're reading something for two seconds and then you're looking at something else. Um, but in the gallery, there's kind of an expectation and there's a, there's a, there's a, an invitation to spend time. Um, and so I want to like leverage that willingness on the, on the part of the viewer, um, 
to not only think about what what the work is doing, um, but then also to to write to think about how 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 the work the questions are the questions that the work is provi- is prompting um, relate to each of our own individual positionings in the world. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, and then also with like challenging the legibility of the text. Um, right there, I mean, these are visual artworks. They're not written, they're not poems, they're not texts. Um, they do contain text, but there's always a risk uh, that viewers will read the work instead of look at the work, um, right? And that that kind of understanding of information in the written form versus versus the visual processing happens really differently. I think this is also something that I like feel aware of as um, someone who's dyslexic um, and and also as as someone who right like as a teenager was was uh, using art to explore things that I didn't could not articulate, did not have did not have words or or, or even a, like a articulated understanding for. Um, and so right I'm interested in this kind of uh, the like invitation to internal process that the artwork visual artwork does for me kind of automatically um and uh and so then right so then having like having text is a, is a very powerful way to sort of prompt or point viewers in a direction um but i don't want the viewer just to read i want the viewer to look and to read and so then there's also, you know, this kind of careful attention to the construction of the work that, that rewards a close looking. Yeah, there's a lot going on with the banners. Those are just two of them. <laughs> so I want to ask more questions about your um, the rest of your life. But before I do, <laughs> is there more you want to say about your art practice and relationship to art communities and art industries? Um. Think so. Look at my notes. I mean, I think more than like. Well, I guess I guess I'll say something about uh, like thinking about trans feminism as a verb instead of as a noun, um, which right I feel like t- ties to to kind of how I was just describing the the work that or the invitation that I see these artworks kind of presenting to to viewers. Um, and so, right when I think about like when I think about trans feminism, I'm not reading. <laughs> Michelle told me that I could not write uh, answers to questions before the interview. So I just had to turn off my phone so that she wouldn't think I was reading from my notes that I made. Um, so yeah, so when I write, when I think about trans feminism, uh, Mikiyama has this really great, um, like, 
broad-reaching definition of transfeminism, which, without reading the quote, I believe is along the lines of uh, transfeminism is a movement for and by trans women who see their liberation inextricably linked to all women and beyond. Um, that might actually be a direct quote. I'm, I'm not sure. Fact check it. Um, that's right. I love this kind of like the broad reach of that definition of of what this politic is, right? That it doesn't attempt to delineate specific individual issues, um, uh, but but and and is like fundamentally about liberation. Um, and I like I totally, I'm yeah, I'm totally into this definition of transfeminism. And and I think like when I use the word though, I think what I'm actually talking about is the kind of like critical self-reflective process that I've been talking about throughout this interview, this kind of like rigorous, loving, critical uh, auto-critique. Um, and I think that that's like, I think that that's like what, like when I think about transfeminism as a verb, that's, that's like, that's what it, that's what it is. Right. And, and that, you know, that like, um, that more so than, than a, like bullet list of agenda items, right? That it's like, it's a way of moving through the world that enables um, uh, loving, sincere engagement with each other and and like the kind of room for potential, like never ending growth. Um, yeah, and I hope, and yeah, right. And so, the, you know, the hope is that that's like, that, that, that the, the, my artwork can, can invite that into the world in some capacity. Uh, so tell us about um, um, your uh, romantic life. My romantic life? Yeah, you haven't mentioned a word oh about it God. this whole time. Have you been, uh, <laughs> yeah. during this long life arc, are you dating people? You mentioned to being attracted to femmes uh-huh. in the early 2000s in Portland. Yeah. Did that go anywhere? <laughs> um, I dated some people. Um, I I am in a partnership with Kirsten Rossi, um, who is um, magical and fantastic, um, and a filmmaker and a rigorous critical thinker. Um, we it's kind of I mean it's sort of debatable when our relationship started, but she moved to New York in two thousand and ten. Um, so that we could be in the same city. Um, and before that, we were doing some like casual dating in Portland and some long distance dating after I moved. Um, yeah, she's really special. Um, I don't know, what else did I say? <laughs> I feel, see, this is why interviews where you ramble are weird it's because like I'm used to conversations somewhere between <laughs> the conversation and the, the essay format or memoir or, or something yeah. totally um, yeah Yeah. 
Um, what have your living situations been like over the years? Um, uh, I li- I've lived in a variety of collective houses um, or apartments with roommates that were more or some more, some less collectivized. Um, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, certainly in Portland, that was like a, a kind of common cohabitation format, um, uh, which I feel like, you know, like roughly translates to how it seemed like seems like a lot of folks cohabitate in New York. Um, uh, I currently live with Kirsten and, uh, and I have a roommate named Connie and Connie has a small dog named Daisy and that is like kind of the best roommate equation you can have. You get to live with a small dog but not be responsible for a small dog. It's pretty dreamy. Um, uh, yeah, when I, when I got bed bugs the first time, that first year in New York, I think I've had them three times now. Um, I really was like, I don't know what, I don't know how, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what to do. Um, and I like threw out a bunch of furniture and I probably didn't need to, but you kind of don't really... I didn't really know, and I feel like there was less information about bed bugs maybe in 2007, 2008 than there is now. Or at least I have a routine since I've had them three times. Um, uh, but yeah, I moved, I had moved into a building that was infested, um, and so like our you know they showed up in our apartment, and we had our apartment treated, and then they came back like three months later, and then we were talking to our neighbors, and they're like, oh yeah, everyone has them. <laughs> we should move <laughs> um but i was scared you know there's this fear of like being a contaminant with bed bugs um they're really they're really stressful i don't know why i don't know what it is about the kind of psychology of having bed bugs but it, it's it's a very taxing experience uh but my friend sergio rodriguez he was just like oh yeah you should just move in with me and my dad and i was like you sure about that <laughs> like what if i bring bed bugs and he was like well it's cool my dad's a super so like he'll be able to take care of it but also he's convinced that we can't have them so and i was like cool i'm gonna still like treat everything i possibly can and he was like yeah that's great um and that was really really beautiful i got to live with serge and with Roddy. uh i think i was there for like three or four years um, and yeah, and just having, right, so having this kind of community support in this, like, situation that I really didn't know what I was going to do, um, to have a peer just, like, take me under his wing like that was really, really heartwarming. Thanks, Serge. Thanks, Roddy. Uh, it seems like you're, when you've talked about your politics, um, it seems like a fair amount pivots around race and class. Um, and I'm wondering a little bit about, um, sort of how, um, like, um, and you've referenced a lot of people in your life, um, uh, 
I'm wondering about how, um, you know, New York and a lot of places are so deeply segregated mm. that lines, uh, communities occasionally are multiracial, but then very class segregated. Mm. Other communities are, um, uh, people live very racially segregated lives. And I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how the sort of multiracial, the degree of multiracial character or multi-class character in your life now, or like how segregation plays out, and um, a little bit about the sort of composition and dynamic of art communities or queer communities you're a part of. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I feel like in my experience in queer communities, both in New York and in Portland, um, that there is uh, like a potential to sidestep um, some of these segregating factors. Um, and that doesn't mean that that like always happens um, in a way that feels good or, or right, or that there isn't the potential to kind of end up rearticulating um, hierarchical power dynamics that are very familiar to our culture. Um, but I do feel like, I feel like that, that there is, uh, something in a kind of like, um, in, in like other search for belonging that happens in queer space, um, that can allow for, for a greater level of, uh, classed and racial integration than, than often happens in other social spaces in the U.S., um, uh, yeah, and I think that, right, that, like, my introduction to New York, um, was, like, was through, primarily through Queers of Color, um, and so that has also, like, uh, you know, channeled or affected who, who I was in community with, who I, who, who, who I was, you know, getting to know and reaching out to, and, um, and, and, like, Right, like having proximity to. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, like I do. I don't know. I mean, I think as the commun- the queer communities that I am part of age, I feel like that there's like maybe just less socialization in general, right? That like folks are hanging out with partners more and are partying less and are sleeping more, <laughs> including myself. Um, grandma, grandma smiley. Um, and so I feel like, right, that there there is kind of like a narrowing of, of social space that, that seems to have occurred over the course of the last five years for me. Um, yeah. Is there part of you? I feel like there was a couple prongs to your question. Is there, is there a part that I have not touched on that? No, that's, okay. that seems about, about right. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think you're staying in New York? I don't know. I, I, I feel like New York is very challenging. Um, but I also feel like it's hard to imagine living somewhere else. 
um, and particularly at this stage of artist recognition, it seems kind of silly to leave. Um, uh, but it also is super expensive and super taxing for me to be here at this point. Again, as you know, as as I feel older, um, have less energy. Uh, I feel like it takes a lot of energy to do basic things here, like laundry and groceries that I think are just easier to do in like cities that are less dense and have a slightly slower pace. Um, so I don't think I'll stay forever, but I have no idea where I would go or how I would do that. <laughs> yeah. Do you have hopes for where your art practice will go? Um, you know, I think, I feel like this thing I should be more deliberate about. Um, it certainly has felt great to get attempt to get recognition for, for my practice. Um, but I haven't really kind of laid out, uh, um, goals or benchmarks for, for what I for, for, yeah, for what I want it to look like. Um, but I think that would be super valuable in terms of manifesting. <laughs> so that seems like some good homework. <laughs> and you're, um, do you have a, do you have any thoughts about where sort of the more I guess, trans-artistic practice or trans-artistic community might be going? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think... I think I'm kind of resistant to the idea of a trans-artistic practice. Um, again, in, like, like, wanting to kind of point away from a delineation of... Uh, what 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 qualifies as trans what makes something trans what is a trans practice um uh but i mean i do think right that the uh the attention that has happened in the last couple of years including um the sort of uh attention from stonewall 50 that just happened this last summer um has been really beneficial for a lot of emerging trans artists in new york um and yeah, I'm really excited to see what we all are doing in 10 years. Um, but right, but you know, that like, right, those practices are like really divergent from each other in terms of medium, in terms of content. Like, I feel like there are certain themes that are, that seem of, of mutual interest, but, but again, like, yeah, you know, delineating too tightly what that, what, what would define a trans practice feels um, kind of precarious. Yeah. It doesn't have to be defined. It goes somewhere. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, let's go somewhere. <laughs> yeah, any other closing thoughts you want to share? Or... Um... 
I had a note about, and I mean, I feel like this, maybe part of why the inter- this interview structure is funny is because, like, we know each other, and, and so I'm, I'm more used to having conversations with you, but also because, like, I know that you are incredibly smart and incisive and insightful, and so it feels a little bit funny to, like, be blabbing at you when I'm like, but what does Michelle think about that? But what does Michelle think about that? I'm sure she has some really good points to make right now. Why isn't she sharing them? Um, yeah, so I'm, I look forward to getting discussed with you about all the things I just blabbed at you at. Anytime. <laughs> I would love to. Um, but also, and, I, and, I, and, you know, if you want to discuss them now on tape, this question, but I had, I had it, like, when I was kind of thinking about sort of right, like what I see parts of my practice doing, I was just thinking about the kind of the, the, the sort of juxtaposition of the erasure of trans history and then this, and then what I referred to as this kind of like obsessive fascination with, with trans people. And like, I guess thinking about kind of, you know, right. That we had this like 2014, I'm making air quotes here for a uh, trans tipping point. Um, but then that there's been this kind of series of like transmedia moments that have happened over the decades. Um, uh, the, the thing that I think Susan Stryker has talked about and um, uh, Chris Vargas has talked about in Artist Talks. Um, and so, yeah, and so thinking about kind of like what does, yeah, like what does it mean to be simultaneously like feeling this erasure of, of history, but then also to have these these moments of hyper-visibility. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I think, like, I think the thing that I am left with is kind of, right, the ways that it feels like that hyper-visibility just doesn't actually have anything to do with, like, seeing, understanding, or caring about trans people, right? That it's, that it's like, this kind of spectacle. Um, but it does feel, it does feel weird that it also feels like that there is this real like, uh, I mean, and the, right, and that like historical erasure, the violence of historical erasure, like, can really easily nest with that with that kind of like fascinating like outside fascination. Um, but yeah, but there is something there is something that feels just curious about the kind of the way that those two sort of mirror each other or or like run side by side to each other. What do you think? Well, that's certainly a preoccupation of this project, um, oh, you know, the sort of uh, trying to think about narrativizing or talking about our lives in ways that um, might run counter to the the inherited narratives that are a big part of the tipping point um, and thinking about the complexity and dynamics of people's lives. And, you know, certainly that uh, some of the art scenes that like you you play a role in are, are dealing with this very mm. critically and very dynamically i think i'm less um uh pessimistic uh and less paranoid i guess in that i think uh the the what we're fighting for is liberation and part of that is like universal well-being and uh, collective care and transformed politics and economics and society to get there and that that you know like of course we're not there like we're in a we're in a long-term struggle you know we're in a long-term struggle that unfolds over time 
And I think there's a there's a critical tension to how every step forward is like two steps back. Mm. And sometimes it is, definitely sometimes it is. And sometimes it's not. Like sometimes, you know, they, we have complex, contradictory moments that are qualitative improvements over what we had not long before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they're uneven qualitative improvements. You know, certainly like the triumph of gay rights has meant very little as welfare states have been gutted and the increasing scale mass incarceration and lots of other very serious social problems that poor queer people face. But that poor queer people have also made advances and they're not marriage. They're not, you know, but Mm -hmm. they're in other ways. Like, and um, that um, like I've been very moved, for example, how much the trans tipping point has been really shaped by a number of very smart black trans women, yeah, for example. Absolutely. And that that has really quite touched me, you yeah. know. Um, and yeah, and it feels like, and then, you know, in an ongoing way that what, like how Stonewall was understood or talked about, like there are billions of dollars involved in Stonewall globally and hundreds of millions of dollars here in New York. And, you know, a huge amount that's really very heavily dominated by white class privilege and men and and uh some very destructive things but like the the speaker series that i helped to be part of at the library like i felt like we had a little moment of being able to get some money for some really good conversations that i was really quite moved to be a part of and figuring out how to capitalize on that how to build on that and of course that money is all gone now like there's no support at all anymore <laughs> but like those the conversations that we had counted for something yeah. counted for something really substantive and i don't think we have to be like naively optimistic or like blithely ignore all the ongoing problems in order to be like we are we are building the fragments of like a different kind of way of being with each other and trans people have been building that for a long time and the scale of that and the depth of that um, and the irreversibility of that is taking on a different shape in the present. And that's part of why I put so much work into these interviews. Yeah. That I think they really do count for something. Absolutely. And you do it in your art practice. You yeah. know, like you, you make art, like you don't just back down. Yeah. Thank you for that. That was really eloquent and beautiful and inspiring yeah i'm more optimistic than a lot of people yeah i mean i you know i'm a communism or barbarism kind of person (laughs) so like we either have to get out of this or it's going to get very bad yeah but like what trans people are doing the last decade is one of the most promising things for the future of the world yeah yeah i I, yeah i want to i want to carry that uh frame with me Well, thank you for talking Tuesday. Yeah, thanks for asking questions and having me. Yeah, it was a pleasure.